Welcome to the Mindful Runner Podcast, a show about running and racing, trail and ultra in South Africa. Along the way, we'll be talking training, gear, nutrition, and mindfulness, all in the context of the South African racing scene. I'm your host, Fred Richardson, founder and head coach at Mindful Runner. Stay tuned as I do my best to give you all the information and none of the waffle. Today's episode, I'm joined by Linda Doak, who is currently the record holder for the fastest mixed pairs time on the DGT route. She's also a running coach, but we'll get into that a little later. Linda, you're currently the record holder. How many times before you actually set this record, the mixed pairs record, did you do the route? You know, Fred, um, it was my first full attempt of the route. I certainly have to qualify that by saying, although I didn't have the knowledge of the uh, Druckensberg escarpment and everything that that involves, I was with possibly and very probably the most or one of the most experienced people that I could possibly be with, with Reno Hrysel on that escarpment. It's so important to go in with experience up there. Reno has years of experience up there. He's played up there. He's he's done sections of the route repeatedly. He's done, he had at that point done the full traverse four times, not racing every time, obviously, but exploring and learning and practicing navigation, practicing different routes, uh, experiencing it in different weather conditions. That's, that's, phenomenally important and I can't emphasize that enough so for me uh, I went I went in I won't quite say naive because although it was my first full attempt we did do a recce together two months before we did the full attempt we we went up to do our recce in the first half of January we did the first half of the route the first hundred and well a bit more than than half 130 k's we did the section from Sentinel to Giant's Castle. That was really for me to experience the terrain, to know what to expect. It gave me a taste of what it's like up there. Obviously, I'd been in mountains. I'd played in mountains before, but every mountain range is different. My learning curve that weekend was was so steep. It really was. I saw what I needed to adjust food-wise, training-wise, and kit-wise. That was uh, that would make me more appropriate for our attempt, which was to be two months later at the end of uh, at the end of March. We achieved our two part goal on this, which was my first attempt. And I say two part because something as big as a feat like this, taking on a feat like this, we knew that there was every chance that we wouldn't complete it. There's so many factors to consider. Firstly, we were alone up there, just two people. The distance, that's always a factor. Although both of us were very experienced with ultra distances from various events over the years, um, this would be my furthest nonstop distance. And before then, my my furthest distance, even close to that, nonstop, was 174 Ks on the Grand Raid of Reunion. And also this was on mountains, uh, a huge mountain range, and mountain conditions are so unpredictable, so changeable. Of course, there, there was another factor, and that's the altitude and the consequences of the altitude. And the crazy thing, Fred, is that 
altitude can affect you in one way one time and not in that same way another time. So you never quite know. So it's another variable. And then the other factor to consider, of course, that made this a an attempt, we always we always called it an attempt, was the what if factor in terms of injury. You never know what's going to happen. You might, one of us might twist an ankle. You could do that in the first 10 Ks for all you know. And then the various scenarios that that would entail, you know, you'd have to come down somehow. And once you're up there on that escarpment, it's not just a matter of, oh, hell, I'm not enjoying this, or I've got an injury, I'm pulling out. Because how do you get down? You've got to get down. You've got to know that route well enough to know, firstly, your nearest escape route. And you might be another 10 Ks from that nearest escape route. And that nearest escape route is inevitably not likely to be a, a path. It's not a, it's not a trail. It's a, it's a way down the escarpment and it's going to be hectic. So you might have this severely sprained ankle. You might have a broken leg. That might take you another 12 hours to get down. So these were all things that because there were only two of us, we had to take into account, have a plan that would that would see us safe. The second part of the goal. So the first part of the goal, really, that we had was to achieve it, to achieve the distance of the of the Grand Traverse. Um, and then the second part of the goal on achieving the distance was, let's try and shoot for the for the for the mixed record. At that point, the mixed record was. 78 hours and 57. They came in just under 79 hours. It was set in November 2014. And it was by tweet uh, as part of a, a, an adventure racing team, the Merrill Adventure Addicts. It was, it was tweet, Graham Bird. It was um, his teammates, Hanno Smith, Robin Keim, and Grant Ross. They set, yeah, the record, uh, 78 hours, 57. I believe that they got hammered by bad weather, but more importantly, they got cliffed out, I believe, which is, you know, there's not one set route and you try and take the route that you believe to be the best or most optimal route and you might just well get cliffed out. And I think that that's what happened to them. It was it was harsh. Um, and then they had to spend the night, I think, in this cave. I don't know, but it chewed up a lot of their time. So we had that as, as our goal to, to try and beat and luck was on our side. We obviously had both prepared hard, but you need luck as well. You need good fortune when you run mountains to achieve the goal that you, you aim for. And um, any amount of preparation and training and all of that can only get you so far. The rest you need good fortune. So you've done all the prep, you've put it all together, you've assessed all the risks, you guys are ready to go. Talk me through the story of actually running the route. Obviously, our first question was, when should we do it? Now, Ryan and Reno had done it in the third weekend of March the year before, and they had been lucky with a good weather window. There are two best times of year to do this. One is in March at the end of the rainy season and in not not even summer but I suppose autumn so end of March and the other is November 
the weather is warming up. It, it, it can even be quite hot, but it's it's prior to the rainy season. And it's not just rain you should worry about, it's thunderstorms because you're up there and you're exposed and you don't want to be the highest point on a mountain. There's lightning and you just don't want to be up there then. We didn't want to wait for the November, so we went for the March. We actually went, I can't remember if it was coincidental or not, but we we did it on the third weekend of March, exactly a year after they had set their goal, their their record. In the week leading up to to that weekend, we obviously weather watched on the on the various um, mountain range forecasts, and we saw that there was it looked like a good weather window. I at the time was was at altitude. I spent um, a week at Afri Ski, uh, breathing thin air, <laughs> Reno is very lucky with altitude. He doesn't suffer altitude issues and he just doesn't need thin air practice in other, to, 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 to cope with thin air. He's, he's one of the lucky few, um, but I do. And um, so I was at Afriski and we were both watching these weather sites with, with great trepidation and it looked like a good window. Our plan was to set off in the early hours of the Friday, I can't remember the exact date, but it was that third weekend of of March. And part of our planning, part of our contingency plan and our safety plan was to have a team on the ground, so to speak, a a team below that would, in effect, dot watch us because we had a a, a spot on us and we had a satellite phone on us for safety reasons. It was Craig, my husband, and and a friend of uh, Reno's. They were our sort of team on the ground who were based at the bottom and they drove along sort of vaguely parallel to us in case of an emergency where where we needed to come down, they could they could sort of be vaguely able to get to us. And uh, once we descended, thankfully, we never needed that. So we spent the Friday night at Bitsy's Hook at uh, about quarter to two in the morning. We set off up to the start of the, the trail. And off we set. It was about 2, 2 a.m. or thereabouts, 2.30 and the weather conditions were great, and off the two of us set. We were, I must say at this point, we were originally, the plan had been for, for us to be three, because just for safety reasons on a mountain, you really should be three in case something happens to one of you, then one of you stays with that injured person, and the other goes for help. Kurbus van Sale, a close friend and uh, often endurance partner, team member with Reno almost as experienced as Reno in mountaineering and mountain matters. He was our third person and Kurbis uh, got flu literally two days before we were due to, to start. And Reno and I said, sure, you know, should we, should we can this idea? Because now we're only going to be two and that's not safe. I think Reno was very aware that, that he had my safety in his hands. And while I felt absolutely safe, he was always aware and mindful of, of my safety. You know, Reno is the ultimate responsible sports person. And we both agreed, no, let's let's go for it. The weather looks good. We also were aware that there was a cold front approaching and that we had this quite tight window that we needed to take advantage of. 
So if we set on, on time and uh, conditions good and we went up the chains and um, yeah, it, it, it was very exciting. It was um, quite, uh, it's, it's, it's quite something going up those chains in the dark because Fred, as you know, running at night anyway to a headlamp means you see nothing. You have no landmarks. You're literally running in this tunnel of light ahead of you. And you may as well be running anywhere. And the crazy thing about that escarpment is once you're up there, once you climb that initial, up to that initial elevation, you're up there, you're on top. Everything for the next 190, no, well, I, I can't say solidly 190 Ks, but the crazy thing is 190 kilometers of that 200 plus kilometers are all are spent above 2,700 meters. So you're literally, apart from a few hectic climbs, because you're going up and down, up and down, there's not a lot of drastic climbing. There are some long hauls, don't get me wrong, that are absolutely exhausting, yes. But there's no climbing, climbing, apart from those initial chains. Because once you're up there, you're literally going up and down. And that's quite something that you, you underestimate when, once you're up there. The crazy thing about telling the story of this, these next 200 kilometers, 200 plus kilometers, is that it's kind of hard to remember. <laughs> and I remembered thinking this just days after we were down and I was trying to digest this whole achievement and, and what the past week really had entailed. And I remember thinking, you know, I wish I could remember specific, dramatic, I thought my head would be full of dramatic memories as experiences on other mountain ranges had been. Like, for instance, when you're in the Alps, for example, you know, there are dramatic scenes that you, that are burnt to your memory. But on the Drakensberg, on the escarpment, it's the visuals are very different from that. Once you're up there, so you are at elevation, up there, the, the visuals are more rolling green hills, really, because as I say, you've done that initial climb. Now it's a whole bunch of hills that you've got to summit up and down, up and down, and it is exhausting. But the views are very green, but for us, of, uh, because the rainy season was now behind us, it's full of green valleys, a lot of wet, soggy underfoot, long valleys that go on forever and long, gradual climbs. You're very seldom on the edge of that escarpment. So you very seldom have that dramatic drop-off cliff edge experience. Apart from, I think it was Mafadi and Giants, the rest of the time you're slightly in, be it even... 200 meters away from the edge. So you don't know you're at the edge. You don't know how close you are to that edge because you might be 500 meters from the edge um, and you're going along parallel to the edge, obviously. So it's not a dramatic vista around you. It's a beautiful one, but it's a continuous green hilly vista. Anybody who's been up on that escarpment will know and will 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 chuckle at the fact that they there aren't paths. There is no hiking path. The Basuta herdsmen in, in summer 
have their herds up there of, of, of sheep and these sheep follow one another and they, they walk on these paths and these paths seem to lead to nowhere because they just meander all over the place. So it's not a matter of once you're up there, you just follow the path because those paths go all over the place and they are deeply rutted. So they're not easy to run along and they're narrow, very narrow. They sort of hug the escarpment, but not close, like I, like I say. And you're constantly meandering over, over hills and endlessly long, long valleys. We were up there for 63 and a half hours. That was our nonstop slog. And it is a slog. I have to say it's a slog, but it is in a strangely perverse way that only ultra runners will understand. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great slog. And of course, you have times inevitably where you wonder what the hell you're doing this for because it hurts and there's no way out now because you're up there and you, you have downers. But then, of course, you have the equivalent highs of, wow, this is amazing and this is why I do it and I'm so glad I'm up here. <laughs> And the wonderful thing about doing this with a teammate is that you can share these highs. And, and I know that we'll get on one of your questions, Fred, um, is, is about running with a, with a teammate. Um, so I, I, won't, I won't cover that now, but it is such an important part of this experience. And I'm sure Andrew Porter and, and Armand, Will I really take my hat off to the two of them because achieving something like this distance and this over this degree of difficulty on this terrain and in those conditions and meeting those challenges solo when you've only got your mind and your thoughts to keep you going and your positive thinking and your strength of will to keep you going, I admire that enormously because. That must be really the ultimate in hard because the when the challenges smack you from all directions and you've only got yourself to push through them, that's that's the ultimate in digging deep and and and, and pushing on. And thankfully we weren't that. I had I had Reno, I had the mountain man. You know, he, he's he's ever positive, and I'm sure he 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 fought his own battles within himself for sure. I mean, it wasn't easy for him, of course. But, um, but he never for a moment let me think that. I mentioned that we were chased by a looming storm. And literally, it was that once we were up there, we could see that there was this huge, dirty, great, dark cloud, far away, but approaching. And that kept us on our toes, really. We, we couldn't linger. And I was relieved about that because although I cursed it, it kept us. We didn't want that storm to reach us for obvious reasons. So we had to keep moving, keep moving to keep ahead of it. It wasn't a fast moving storm, but had we lingered, it, it would have got us and it would have just changed everything, really. The strange thing really is that it's however long it is you're up there for, however long it takes you, it kind of the memories just merge into, into this long continuum, really. So I can't. Be specific, but there are moments that stand out. Yes, I think we we probably need to have a support group for everybody who's done the DGT because the description of long rolling hills and lots of valleys—that's all anybody remembers. It's the one thing that everybody talks about is the monotony of 
of the of the route. Um, and it's because you're also looking at that is the most optimal route. It's not the most spectacular route along the escarpment. Yeah, list. exactly. So you're trying to follow a valley the whole way through, actually. Um, there are no continuous valleys, of course, but you're trying to find, trying to summit as few of those to cross over. So you're looking for saddles, you're looking for valleys and that kind of thing. And yeah, I've I've actually got from Stain's notes in our in our planning, I, I chatted just to Stain online as well. And the number of climbs in excess of 200 meters are more than 28. So you're constantly going up and over and up and over. And I promise you, your heart, <laughs> your heart just sinks once you've got one of those and you're coming down the other, you're coming down the other side and you and you can see this long valley, as you say, it might be eight Ks long, and you, your heart sinks because ultimately that valley climbs over there. And you know you're going to be climbing that bit over that saddle. You're doing it all over again, as you say, because those ridges are at about three thousand meters minimum, and you're dropping down to two seven on most of those valleys. And you do, you feel so so small, and it is very humbling. It it's incredible. I mean, you've run in mountains all over the world. What what makes the Drakensberg so unique? You know, we've had people come out from Europe, for instance, and and I think the thing that everybody always highlights is simply the wildness of it. Yes, I I think that's exactly it. It really is. It's also, it is like a giant tabletop, not that it's flat, but I mean, it is, it's an escarpment. So you come from down below and you've been looking at it for days and gasping in awe at the beauty, wherever you are, whether it's the northern end, the southern end, you can see it and it's long. So wherever you go up uh, onto that escarpment and you're on it, you realize you're you're suddenly a good 1800 meters higher than you were maybe and yeah. and 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 you're heading along it and you're in a different country that's the other beauty, beautiful thing about it you're in a different country and it's a country that has a very different culture and it's from ours it's different from everything you know as I say, if something were to go wrong, you're you're actually in stuck because you, what are you going to do? Speak to a herdsman, you know, and that herdsman will know what to do in his way. He'll take you to where he can help you, but it's very different from anything you've known. So it's a very different culture. It's a different country. It's a different place, and it's we are we because we're clueless and from we're 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 from the urban life we are not we're not equipped to be up there actually we can be as fit as we want and we can prepare as much as we can but we're we're not equipped solo up there we're clueless what was the gear that you carried or wore you know we thought about this long and hard and of course again i had the experience of reno and reno's advice it's a it's a tricky one because you need gear for all seasons and it's important to, to remember that up there, any month of the year, it can snow. It can reach zero. It can reach sub-zero temperatures. And you can get any climatic condition up there, from extreme rain to extreme cold to extreme heat and dryness. So you want gear that's going to be adequate for all of those conditions, but at the same time, you need to be as light as possible. While not wanting to punt a brand, <laughs> 
I, um, both of us, Reno and and myself, are sponsored by Salomon, so we have access to to the best gear for those conditions. And we thought about it and planned really carefully. And everything we weighed everything. And gear is one thing. Nutrition is another. And of course, nutrition is the heavy thing uh, in terms of weight. But you also mustn't go light on on food. So again, you need as light gear as possible, but effective so that you can carry as much food as you possibly can. Because we were a team and because we were a mixed team and inevitably the guy, no matter how fit and strong the the woman is, the guy is going to be the stronger member of the two. You need to think as one. We shared our gear proportionately as a ratio. In other words, Reno carried heavier than I did. He was the the poor sucker who had to carry the two-man tent. (laughs) And it was a very light and very small and very the the lightest possible two-man tent imaginable. But it gave us, it it was important that it would give us shelter if we needed it. And then we each carried our, obviously carried our own kit um, in terms of um, clothing kit, our own medical kit, our own things like change of socks. Silly, seemingly silly things like that. It's an extravagance, you'd think, but Mm. psychologically, knowing you've got a pair of dry socks in there, even though they're going to get wet in the first five minutes, but they are fresh. (laughs) (laughs) Putting on those dry socks, even for those five minutes, just just bolsters you. um, And you save them for when you really have to. That's what I was going to say. Did you find yourself saving your socks for, no, I can't put them on now because it's not bad enough yet. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Your feet will be wet from the start to the, pretty much to the finish because it's soggy up there. It's very spongy and it's swampy. You go through sections of swamp up there and not necessarily muddy, just a lot of, reed beds, not tall reeds, short reeds, and swampy, grassy, swampy, strange terrain up there. But really that escarpment is one giant sponge. And that's why the escarpment is a water catchment area that we all benefit from. But it is, it's a giant sponge and your feet will be wet for days, for as long as it takes really. But back to our gear, I think, I, I don't know how, what, Reno's weight was um, in his pack. It was heavier than mine, but I think mine was possibly about five kilograms or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. One thing we didn't carry a lot of because we didn't need to was water. Yeah. Obviously, we carried vessels, we carried bottles, but and we always had at least half full bottle with us, but there was so much water up there, it was plentiful. So we were always scooping. We never under uh, underhydrated, yeah. um, but we never had to carry much water. And you know, one liter of water is a kilogram. Yeah. So you really, you don't you don't want to lug unnecessary weight around. So we could con- constantly scoop. There were rivers, and it's the cleanest, most beautiful, delicious water. So that that was a bonus. Yeah, having that little soft cup is also quite useful, just for those scoops. We've covered the gear, um, and you mentioned nutrition. What did you carry for nutrition? I'm I'm a great believer in real food. I'm for years I I could use 
goo and gels, but my my stomach just I think from about 2010 onwards it just it, it doesn't cope with any gels anymore. It just rebels. Um, so real food is is how I fuel, how I have to fuel, and things like powders. So I used. Obviously, again, you want bang for bucks calories. You want calorie-rich, calorie-dense food that agrees with your gut. Powder-wise, I used things like Ensure, and I took it in Ziploc bags, portioned in Ziploc bags, pre-portioned, all measured, so that I knew that one little Ziploc bag, I would just pour into a bottle and I'd fill it up 300 mils, and that would be... X number of calories. I knew that that was a meal replacement. And I had a lot of those little Ziploc bags, all in different flavors. I also used Future Life. And I had a lot of nuts and raisins. I don't use raw. I use roasted and salted. I always use dried apricots, but not the not the hard, chewable apricots. I use the soft Turkish apricots. They're easy on the gut as well, and they don't cause any gut issues. I carried salt tablets as well. On the advice of others, I tried Droivos and and Biltong. The Biltong went down well. The Droivos did not. I hate Droivos. It's full of bits, and I my mind does all sorts of imaginings about what those bits are, cartilage, toenails. I don't want to know. So I threw the Droivos away. Halfway through, but um, and I stuck to my my biltong and my nuts and my future life insure and uh, raisins and apricots and I had a lot of that stuff. And you find every time you have a meal, there's a sense of relief of okay, that's a bit more weight and a bit more space in my pack available now. Yes, and also you know calories in. It's 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 good peace of mind knowing you're fueling. So racing is a pair. This is an interesting thing, I think, and the event that's going to happen. People have to race in pairs. What's your experience, your experience of, of running as a pair? I've done quite a few races in two-person teams. In my experience, they've always been successful. They've always been happy memories. But that's because we both chose well. You can't just pick your, your mate. You're not necessarily right for each other. I've raced with my first experience of racing in a, in a two-person team was do you remember the Cape Odyssey in 2006? Oh, yeah. It was South Africa's first multi-stage trail running event, and it was very exciting. And it was here in the Cape. And I ran with a friend of mine, Sylvie Schatzinger, or Sylvie Harris in those days. It was a five-day stage race, and we had such fun. We were as strong as each other. We, we won. And it was just such a brilliant and positive experience. And then the following year, I ran the same race again with Caroline Hanks. So again, a a women's pair, we won and we had such fun. It was such a positive experience. And while we were experiencing that week on both of those occasions, we witnessed other pairs, other teams that were having a nightmare. You know, they might have been mixed teams, they were often mixed teams, actually, where they were just not equally matched in terms not only of ability and fitness, but temperament. And that's a huge characteristic you've got to you've got to think of carefully before you just merrily ask your buddy if you want to team up for such and such a race. You've got to be matched in temperament. An example of being matched in temperament but not matched in fitness or or at least ability, was my third experience of running in a two-person team was with Ryan Sands in the Transalpine 
run, eight days in Europe. It was the most amazing run. It was in 2010, and it was a 200, no, sorry, 315 kilometer over the eight days, uh, running from, started in Germany, we ran across Austria and ended in the Dolomites in Italy. Very beautiful. Each day was just short of a marathon distance. And I knew going into that race that we were certainly not equally matched. I mean, who was equally matched to Ryan Sand? And I was nervous, you know, I thought, yikes, you know, and it was Ryan who had asked me, by the way. So I went in with a lot of pressure placed by me on, on me to not fail this man. You know, he'd, he'd done lots of, at, at that point, he was, he was still doing his, his desert races and he'd won them all. And he knew nothing but victory, you know, and I thought, oh, hell, <laughs> <laughs> this is hectic. What am I going to do? And he's going to hate me. He's going to have such a dreadful experience. But I have to say, Ryan was just the best partner. He was extremely patient and he never, ever showed any form of impatience with me. He knew he was the stronger and I was the weaker link in the team. And let's face it, in a team, no matter how big or small the team, the team is only as strong as that weaker link. So I was it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yet he only ever had words of encouragement and gentle, nice, positive encouragement for me. There was never any impatient words or anything. It was just, come on, you know, we can do it. Let's do it. Or silence. There was a lot of silence. Ryan is very quiet. But the silence was never because he was having a dreadful time or he was sulking because I was so slow or anything like that. It yeah. was just because he's he's quiet and I learned to realize that. Yeah. And and we did well. We equal in temperament. And that's the important thing. We both, the other important thing in any team is you've both got to want the same thing. You've got to be equally hungry to achieve your goal. And it's got to be a goal that you both want and that you both desire. You you both really are hungry for that goal. It mustn't be the one person's goal and the other person's just tagging along. Otherwise, that's just going to lead to disaster. And ideally, you've got to be equally matched, but not necessarily. I've never raced in a romantic couple, but I imagine that it would simply have to be the same thing. I've, I've, I've seen successful couples r racing together, and I've seen a lot of unsuccessful couples and couples that have their relationships have ended yeah. because of a race, you know. Yeah. Um, I know couples who can't even train together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I know, I equally, I know couples that really can and they, they do race after race together and they love it and they, 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 they strengthen each other and they have, you know, when the one is having a down time, a down moment or a really hard time, the other bolsters them. And that's what it's got to be about. It's got to be because you will have your, no matter how strong or fit the one person or, or you both are, you will have your your moments of weakness. You absolutely will, you know. And and Ryan and Reyna will have experienced that in their record-breaking achievement I know that Reno suffered gut issues and um, had to pull through. And Ryan will have helped him, you know, just morally, just um, just psychologically, just been there, just supported. Yeah. And that's the most important thing. You've got to be there. You are, you've got to see yourself as one unit. 
And if you were one person running along and you have a down moment, you're not going to you're not going to beat yourself up because if you do, that's tickets. Yeah. Instead, you've got to pick yourself up. You've got to say, "Come on, this this negative time isn't going to last. I've just got to pull through this hard time, and I've got to dig deep, and then I'll be out of this trough, and I'll be I'll be strong again. I must eat. I must think straight. Very importantly, I must get my blood sugar level back to where I can think positively and and I'll be out of this this bad bad time and, and so the the person who's not having the bad moment has got to be there for the other and bolster them and that's the most important thing you mentioned uh, the weaker link a little earlier and I know from adventure racing and certainly this is what Rainer would bring to the table as adventure racers you try and average out the pace you never are moving at the slowest pace, which is why the guy would take, Reyna would t- carry the tent because that's going to yes. help both of you go faster because you're a team. You're not two individuals. And so you try and yes. optimize each other's skills and strengths. Yeah, I think it's, yeah. it's going to be vital during these during this race that whoever you're teaming up with, and like you, I've raced with in adventure racing teams where, we cobbled the team together at the last moment and that never worked. The teams that worked well, those are the mm. ones that you train with week in, week out, and, and you know each other. You know, I mentioned we, we had our recce run in the January. One of the intentions behind that recce run was not only to show me the route and I can experience the top of the escarpment and, and learn what I must and mustn't have kit-wise. It was also to be together. And it was the it was actually four of us. It was also Kurbas. Uh, and it was a fourth as well, another friend of theirs. Um, he had he never had any intention of joining us for the actual challenge, mm. but it was important for for Reno, Kurbus, and I to spend time together up there, learning about each other and and just spending time together and and the hours, clocking the hours. Yeah, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You learn so much about each other in these sorts of events. Yeah, it's amazing how close you can become to somebody you've never met before in the space of 70 hours, right? So true. In terms of pacing, how do you pace yourself for an event that for the for the front of the field is going to take between 40 and 60 hours, but for the guys who who are moving along at the back, they've got 100 hours. How do you pace yourself as an individual? Well, I guess the important thing is to not go out too fast. <laughs> I always say that. I'm often a bit like a stuck record with that advice. Um, the longer the distance of the event you're taking on or the challenge you're taking on, the slower you've got to go out. With something like, like this, the other thing I really believe in and I really applied for this challenge is I always believe in having a plan A and a plan B scenario, and it's sometimes even a plan C. So in other words, your plan A, if everything goes right in this ultra, no matter what the distance, I would like to achieve this time and it means I won't have any hiccups, any injuries, and it means I'll just have a great day and I'll achieve that. A plan B, and it's often it often ends up being plan B, is if the day ends up too hot and you have to, oh, you end up slower than you your pacing plan had you doing, have a plan B pacing chart, you know, and so that you're you're not completely knocked off your psychological balance really because it's so important to keep a positive frame of mind in any ultra yeah 
In fact, I'd say it's probably the most important thing because you've done the training, you've done the research, you know whether to expect that kind of thing. I'm talking of a normal ultra here. If you, for whatever reason, are slower than expected, it can really set you back psychologically and you've got to then rely on a plan B. So we had a plan A and a plan B, but it wasn't a specific time-based scenario really because with something like this when there's so many factors to consider that can be thrown at you up there the important thing for us and also the the reality was i was not the experienced one up there reno was so and and i was the weakest link we couldn't have too much of a structured pacing chart really we had an ideal sort of scenario but it had to be kept really loose the important factor was that had to keep moving forward as steadily at at, at as steady a pace as possible. That was our goal. Keep as steady a pace as possible, whether it rains or it doesn't. Because if you keep moving forward, you know from long events, you can cover so much ground by just not farting along. If you keep stopping and changing your socks or checking this or checking your phone, well, which you can't do up there because there's no signal, but on a normal event, if you keep stopping, even if it's at checkpoints, if you stop for five minutes longer than you should at 10 checkpoints, that's 50 minutes longer than you need have taken. And that's 50 wasted minutes. Up there, when you're doing this long distance and you know you're going to be up there for days, every minute counts, actually. So it's a tortoise and hare scenario, really. You're not going to hair off. You shouldn't because you're just going to burn up and the mountains will spit you out. So rather just keep tortoise approach, steady, steady, don't stop unless you have to. And if you're going to stop and scoop water, that's you don't stop to scoop the water. You literally scoop the water and you move on. Yeah. If you can eat on the go, that's better than stopping. It's You just cover the distance. And it's amazing how much faster progress you make. So I would say, really, our, our pacing plan was to keep moving steadily as possible and stop as little as possible. And there's relentless forward progress. It doesn't matter how quick it is, as long as it's just constantly forward. Absolutely. Linda, did you guys sleep on the route at all? Did you plan to sleep on the route? We did plan. And and we kept to that plan, plus one little more sneak sleep. We planned to sleep twice, um, two lots of two hours. We we started our, our run in the early hours of the Friday morning. So 2 a.m. on Friday morning. I th- I think it was about 24 hours later or 23 or thereabouts. I can't remember exactly. It was probably about 23 hours afterwards. We had our first two-hour planned stop where we pitched the tent quickly as possible because mm. you don't want to waste time pitching the tent. So quickly pitch the tent. The tent was one of those throw-up, bounce-into-place igloo kind of things that you had to quickly secure down because it's windy up there and there was heavy mist. You know, we did have good conditions, but inevitably there's mist. We were we were soaked. I remember, and I was cold. I remember once the sun set on that first, that first sunset. So what, what are we now? We on the on the Friday evening. So the Friday evening, the sunset. As soon as the sunset, the temperature dropped. 
I don't know what to, but it, it dropped. Yeah. And it was misty, so you're damp. I ran this whole traverse, by the way, in tights. I, I didn't expect to. Anyway, um, I remember putting on everything. I had my tights on, and then we had waterproof waterproof uh, longs, very lightweight, just waterproof. Um, they weigh nothing, but they're waterproof. Yeah. So I put those over my tights, and I had, uh, I don't know how many layers, but I obviously had my short sleeve that I'd spent the day in. I took that off and I put a long sleeve technical base layer, my short sleeve back on over that. Then I had a, a very lightweight wind windproof, just a wind jacket. Then I had a very lightweight layer on top of that and a waterproof on top of that. So I literally had all my kit on yeah. and there was no sweating happening <laughs> at all. So I wasn't I wasn't wet on, I wasn't damp yeah. on, on my core, but I was damp on the out, outer layer. I think I was so cold because my feet were wet. And I had a beanie on and a uh, buff and gloves and waterproof gloves on top of the base gloves layer. And I just remember being so cold, but we were moving constantly. So my core wasn't cold, but my flipping feet were cold, and which made me cold. But there's nothing you can do about that. Your feet will be cold, and that's just something you've got to come to terms with. But back to our sleep. So we pitched the tent. We, we quickly popped it up. And the important thing is you've got to secure it down. So 10 pegs, hammer, 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 four corners, and a little ground sheet just to keep the wet keep you dry from the wet, but it doesn't keep the cold out from the ground. And we lay down, we we spooned just to try and keep warm. And the important thing as well is to get to sleep ASAP. You've got to maximize that time. You can't just lie there. You've got to, you've got two hours now you've got to sleep. But now your feet are so cold. I can't sleep when my feet are cold. I took my shoes off quickly and my wet socks and I put those dry socks on. Oh. And Fred, it was like, it felt like climbing into a duvet. It was such luxury. It was just joy to my soul. So then I fell asleep. Uh, we knew it was for two hours and we had our watches, both our watches set, on, set to two hours, our alarm on vibrate so that we couldn't possibly sleep through it. There was no excuse. And then before you know it, that damn alarm's going off. Yeah. And, of course, your brain just says, oh, forget the alarm. Just sleep in, you know. It doesn't matter. Yeah. This little voice, you know. Yeah. And then there's Reno going, come on, we've got to get up quickly. We've got to pack up pack up this tent and we've got to get going. So, of course, you get going. But, of course, you eat something. You've got to eat something. Oh, that's right. We ate something. When we pitched the tent, yeah. we quickly ate. Then we slept. Yeah. And then when we woke up again, we quickly ate something again, packed up the tent, and off we went. So it was no time wasted in the um, putting up and taking down of the tent. And off we went. So that now we were in the early hours of Saturday morning. Then it was through the whole of Saturday. And then at 10 p.m. on the Saturday night, 24, 23 hours later, yeah. we slept our second scheduled two hours same story again, quickly, quickly, eat, blah, blah, sleep. And those two hours passed even quicker, damn it. <laughs> and so then off we go again. Now it's the early hours of the Sunday morning and we're trudging along. And our, I remember those last, I, I think at that point we were nearing Tabana, which is the sixth 
peak. Now, because there are six peaks, now don't get me wrong, there are way more than six peaks, but on the schedule, on your on your target and in your head, you've got to tag these six peaks. And it's a it's such a misnomer, actually, because by the time you tag Tabana, it's you think, yay, I've tagged my six peaks. Mm. But actually, you've still got another almost 60 Ks of slog to go, and that's going to take another whole day. So your mind is telling you, yay, I'm nearly there. You are nowhere near nearly there, actually, at all. We're back to the sleeping part. So we had done our two lots of two hours, and that's it. That's no more sleeping now, according to our plan. But before the sun, even the sky started getting light and and Fred you know this from from long endurance events the hardest part of any night when you're going through the night are those last few hours of darkness now that that normally depending on what month you are the year sure and whether you're up on a mountain or you're not but that's normally around 3 a.m that's when your your body cycle is at its um, lowest ebb. You, you are your body temperature is at its coolest, even though you you're active. The, the the outside temperature is also at its coolest. So you are at your most vulnerable, and you're feeling. That's when you are most likely to be feeling down. Also, your 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 body clock doesn't want food. For goodness sake, your body clock wants sleep. Yeah because you're not supposed to be eating and shoving food in and your body clock says, no, you're not supposed to be eating. You're supposed to be sleeping now. So you've got to push through that and, and push that, that, that very deep physical desire for sleep. You've got to push it aside and trudge on. And you are at, at your coldest, you're at your most fatigued now because you've been going through the night. In our case, at this point, we were going through, We'd been through two nights mm. and it was just exhausting. And, and and then the strangest thing happens when the sky starts getting light. And that that's normally roughly called you know, 4 a.m. or whatever. Yeah. If it, It's obviously around that early time if you're up on a mountain, but it can be as late as 5 a.m. if you're in winter or whatever. But whenever that time is, as soon as the sky starts lightening, your your spirit lifts your mindset changes, it becomes more positive, where it's it's just, it changes everything, your whole worldview, you go from the deepest, darkest depths of almost despair, (laughs) to, oh, hang on, life's okay, hang on, I can do this, or hang on, I'm going to make it. And what am I moaning about, actually, look up, look at this beauty, suddenly, you can see beyond your, your troubled, you're here and now you can see beyond and the sky's lightning and there's hope. It's, it's the strangest thing. And, and for me, it's very much about ultras are ultras epitomize life really in a tiny little microcosm. Mm, I agree. Pre-dawn lightning of the sky is like hope really um, hope out of the dark times, no matter what your dark time of life might a dark event might be. In, in an ultra, your dark event is the night. It's hard. Mm. It slows you down. It's hard trudging along. You can't see where you're going. You can't see any landmarks, blah, blah. And suddenly the sky is lightning, and it really is. It's like light, 
light at the end of the tunnel, really, for, for want of a better phrase. So before that happened to, to us, now we were we'd seen the second night through and we were still going on hmm. and we'd covered, I don't know, at this point, a uh, hundred and I don't know what we covered, maybe 150 Ks. It was still dark and we both agreed. We were both in this position where physically where our eyelids just couldn't stay open, damn it. And um, we knew that we both had our, we'd had our planned sleep sessions and we, we didn't really, of course, there was nothing stopping us pitching the tent again, but neither of us, because we both were hungry for the same goal, neither of us wanted to do that unless really necessary. And, you know, suddenly we came around a corner, a corner, we, our our headlamps lit up, should I say, a crawl. Now, anybody who's been up on that escarpment knows that every now and again, you'll come across a crawl and the crawl might be regularly in use, in which case it's, it's a shepherd's crawl and it's made of, it's a round hut and it's thatched and it's made of a short stone wall and it's thatched. Inside the crawl is absolutely nothing. It's a hard packed earth base and it has a hard packed earth um, around the inside of the perimeter. It has hard packed earth like a, like a seat yeah. going around the entire perimeter. And then there's this opening for it as a door. There's no door. It's an opening. Yeah. And out of the mist and the dark, suddenly there was this crawl in our view, like three meters ahead of us in both of our, our headlamps view. And it was it was like sent from heaven, you know. And we both had the same thought. We thought, yes, <laughs> sleep. So we both went in the crawl. Well, first of all, you've got to check, are there dogs in the crawl? Because that's a very, very important thing I mustn't forget to mention. Up there, the, the shepherds have dogs. They're herding dogs and they belong to the shepherds and they, their role is, you know, they're not pets. Yeah. Their role is, is to herd the sheep and they are only answerable to that shepherd and they will only listen to that shepherd's commands and anybody who is not that shepherd is, I suppose, the, the unknown enemy. So you come along. And your knowledge of dogs are, oh, yay, they're pets, you know. <laughs> Isn't that a cute dog? My advice, please, everybody, do not go near those dogs. Those dogs are not pets. They are working dogs. They see anybody outside of a Basutu herdsman as a threat, and they will fly at you if you approach them. And they probably have not been – I'm not saying they have rabies. They hopefully don't have rabies, but you don't want to bite from one of those dogs because you're up there and you're in the middle of nowhere, etc. So don't don't ever go near those dogs. Anyway, so your first important thing to do is check is there a dog in there sleeping with the shepherd? But thankfully there were no sheep and it was a completely deserted kraal. So we thought, yes, and we both went into the kraal and we each settled down onto this hard packed earth kind of it's like a bench thing. And we turned off our headlights and we set our alarms to 15 minutes. (laughs) This was our little extravagance where like a naughty Sunday lion, you know, where, you know, you should get up and run, but you 
turn your alarm off for another 15 minutes. Yeah. And we and we literally both fell asleep. We used our packs as our pillows and we just slept. We just needed it so badly. Sure. And quite amazingly, quite coincidentally, in sync with our alarms going off 15 minutes later, which felt like two seconds, there were voices outside the crowd. And we both we both turn on our light. Now we're in this dark crowd and we just see each other and we we think, oh shit, voices must mean a shepherd. Yeah. Must mean dogs and must mean, you know, we shouldn't be here. Yeah. We this is not our place and we shouldn't be doing this. And you know, it's it's we're intruding, actually. Anyway, so we we duck out of there and we literally duck out of this little door, a little opening. And there in our lamplight, now the sky is lightning. And to our head in our headlight light beam are these two shepherds who are clutching their dogs, thankfully. The dogs don't wear collars, but they're yeah. clutching these dogs. And these sheep are like roaming around. And these shepherds are most confused because who are these people? <laughs> um, and, you know, then they're good guys, but yeah. they're just, con- you know, who, who are, who are we? And we just, we just waved at them. We had to get the hell out of there quickly because of these dogs. And we just went, ha oh, hello. Thank you. Thank you. You know, we gesticulated. Thank you. And we hot footed it out of there. I think that woke us up. The adrenaline of us needing to get out of there, that coinciding with the lightning of the sky and dawn approaching meant that we had such a good start to that day. <laughs> and off we went. With our little injection of 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 um, of fifteen minute power nap, and off we went. There's always this debate around ultras. Poles, yes or no? Would you recommend that people take poles? Did you take poles? You know, Fred, I am not a poles fan. For me, poles get in the way. They occupy my hands uh, when I'm using them, so that I have trouble eating, and then I inevitably delay my eating until I'm going to put my poles away and then I never do. And then I don't eat enough and so on and so on. But I absolutely took poles and I would recommend taking poles because there's, there's a time and a place for poles. And believe me, the DGT is that, but certainly practice with them. And I did for weeks in advance. I, I practiced poles because there, there's a, a definite rhythm to using poles. You've got to learn that rhythm You've got to be comfortable. You've also got to make your wrists strong for long distance with poles. Otherwise, you'll get carpal tunnel syndrome halfway through or something. So, yes, I was so grateful for those poles. They, I lent on them a lot. Um, the theory behind the poles is that they assist you about 20% of your energy or they, they help sort of 20% of your energy level, they boost yeah. you by 20%, providing you're using them right. Yeah. They're giving you that little that little push. So, yes, I would recommend poles. Linda, you've raced all over the world. You've raced on every continent and just about every mountain range on the planet, I think. Just as a runner, what kind of advice would you give to people entering this race? Don't underestimate the challenge of that terrain. You You might be experienced on mountains. You might... Be lucky enough to live near mountains and be able to run on them all, you know, every day. But these are not those same mountains. Every mountain range is different and has its challenges, and this is certainly one of them. And like I was saying earlier, you know, the terrain up there has unique challenges. 
It's certainly not alpine. It's not up and down. It's also not rocky at all. It's, in fact, spongy and wet Mm. once you're up there. And, you know, when you look at this route on paper and even on a map, it's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking, gee, you know, why does it take them so long to cover that distance? It shouldn't. It can't be that difficult. A vertical gain of whatever it is, late 800, 8,000s or early 9,000s or 9,000s and whatever it is, mm. over 200 plus Ks is actually not a radical vertical gain over 200 Ks. So unless you're the wiser, you would look at this and you'd think, why does it take them so long? It really shouldn't. It isn't particularly, it isn't particularly difficult, but that's, that's the huge mistake to make. Really it is. Even if you're an exceptional runner, I would say it's 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 difficult to run continuously on the Berg escarpment on that sort of terrain beyond the first eight hours. Yeah. After that, you're you're power hiking and running, power hiking, running at best. Even if you look at Ryan and Reno's record, which is a phenomenal record, Mm. and it really, you know, they hardly stop moving compared to any other event of that distance they were comparatively slow simply because of that terrain. You know, they averaged five kilometers an hour. Yeah. Which now, seems really slow for people of that caliber. Right? Seems slow, but I, I tell you that's hard. Yeah. That is hard and it's fast. And that's a massive achievement. My primary advice would be don't underestimate it. Don't look at it on a map and think, oh, for goodness sake, that's what's what is everyone on about? You just, you know, have to be able to do 200Ks, no, 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 no. And then I think the second piece of advice applies to all mountains and all mountain ranges is never underestimate the weather. This isn't just mountains. I mean, I I live here in Cape Town and we know that the weather up there on Table Mountain can be unpredictable and completely different from me down here at sea level in Hart Bay. On the Drakensberg, which is an entire range, you know, you can multiply that a hundredfold. You can apply that a hundredfold. So mountains always attract unpredictable weather and massive storms, but mountain ranges even more so. So you can you can expect snow any time of year. The night temperatures can really drop, even in summer, to below zero. Certainly expect wet feet, shoes, and socks for most of your time up there. Practice running at night, absolutely. I I would recommend that to anybody training for any ultra anyway, uh, where they're going to run through the night. Um, And remember also that you're going to be adding fatigue and mental fatigue to everything. You've got to factor mental and physical fatigue into your expectations of this challenge. It's not just physical fatigue. It's very mental fatigue as well because you're going to be grinding up there for days (laughs) no matter how fast you are you'll be going there for days you've got to keep positive you've got to keep a positive frame of mind and it's really hard to do in an ultra and one of the keys to to being able to do that because assuming of course you've done all the training the key to keeping a positive mind is making sure your blood sugar level is as constant as possible Not that it has to be constantly high. It has to be 
constant. So constantly good. Um, because if you let your blood sugar level drop, just say you're, you've been carrying poles for hours and you haven't put them away and therefore you haven't been strict with your eating and then your blood sugar level is going to drop. And before you know it, mm. the nausea kicks in. It's too late to, to, um, to now start eating. It's almost too late to recover what is lost in terms of your eating ability because your blood sugar level drops. Then you get dizzy. Then you get weak. You just want to sit down. And actually, you, lose, you don't care anymore. You, you lose. This, you just don't care. You just want to curl up and just sleep. And it's because your blood sugar level has dropped. So if you can keep your blood sugar level constant by eating and you've got to keep nibbling and you, it's not that you've got to eat a lot, seldom, you've got to nibble little bits often. And it's the same with your drinking. Sip little bit, little sips often is better than huge, uh, a full bottle every two hours because you don't want to, you don't want your system to or your gut to have to cope with big loads. You just want constant, um, little bits constantly. And, um, and keeping your blood sugar level constant allows you to be able to think positively and clearly that's important. You've got to keep your, your wits about you. So you live and you train at sea level. How big a factor is the altitude? And how do you adjust for it if you can't get to altitude? For most of my events, races that I've ever run at altitude, I've managed to, I've been lucky enough to take time off work or be able to take time off work and spend and go up in advance, whether it is locally or in that country. It is an extravagance and it's an expense because you have to take time off work to do it. But it's something I've learned that for me personally, I have to do. And the one time that I didn't do that was before UTD this year. And Fred, you saw me. I was a man. And then always there's the question, how long and how high? Well, it depends on how high your race is. Yeah. But let's say for, for, for DGT, for instance, where a good 190 kilometers of the 200 plus is going to be spent at, well, let's say at 2,700 meters above sea level, I went to Afri Ski and spent eight days. Eight days is about what you can get away with, or seven days. Let's say seven days is what you can get away with. Going up for three days is pretty useless, actually. It's, a, it's an unnecessary expense. The longer you can spend up there, if you can go for two weeks, that's marvelous. And before um, Ryan's and my Transalpine race, I was, I felt so pressured to um, not fail this this poor man that I uh, arranged to go. I spent, I spent fourteen days at Sony Tops at the top of the Sony Pass, uh, Sony Top Chalets. Um, in fact, I, I held the record for the longest stay <laughs> at that um, in those chalets and. It wasn't that I had to, you, you, you don't have to run at that altitude. You just have to be there. So I did my tapering there and I timed it so that I came down, uh, flew back to Cape Town, literally spent the night here um, and we flew out the next day. And we started our race 
four days, three days after arriving in, in Europe. But it is an extravagance and most people can't do that. So what what does one do? And I couldn't do it before, DG, uh, before um, UTD. I, I don't know the answer to that, Fred, because many people say, well, if you arrive, leap straight in, arrive and, and start the race the next day, your body hardly has time to realize that it's at a different altitude and you can get away with it. I, I don't know the science behind that thinking, but I guess I've, I've heard that that's a better way to do it than arriving two days or three days before, because two or three days is simply not enough. That, that I do know. You know, what you're effectively needing is time for your, for your system, for your, for your red blood cells to multiply a bit so that you can you have more oxygen carrying blood cells um, in in your in your system yeah. uh, so maybe the theory of just arriving and and starting is is the only way to go would you hazard a guess at the potential winning time for the race would it be faster in ideal conditions so assuming ideal conditions i presume um i think the fact that there is a drop bag station or a station where there is a drop bag i think that will help because then you don't have to carry you're carrying less i guess um so that's that's got yeah. to that's got to be factored in surely because you know even 500 grams carried over 200 kilometers is a substantial difference you know it's 500 more than you would have to carry but timing wise i wonder um I, I I would I would hate to guess, but I, look, that record will will be broken because that's what records are for, right? But I wonder by how much I I guess in the late thirties. One day you're going to quote me on that, and we'll have a good laugh. <laughs> yeah, look, it may it may never be broken. You know, I mean, chatting through with Stain as well. Uh, you're not the first person to say forty hours, but also chatting through with Stain. He's agreeing with you that if the conditions are absolutely perfect, then the guys who run on minimal gear and minimal food, which is what you need if you mm. want to break the record, will potentially do it. But if the weather just turns slightly, mm. they won't be winning the race. In fact, they will probably be bailing before the end of the race. And then maybe the tortoises Yes, 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 true. Yeah, so gear choice and pacing strategies are going to become really important mm if the berg does what the berg does and that's throw up the weather the other thing to to think about with a two person team a two person team is also while you can get bolstered by your teammate when you're having a down phase um so can a teammate slow you down uh so there's because you yeah. you've got to take two individuals into account rather than than one so there's always that factor as well. It can it can speed you up, but it can also slow you down. You're a running coach. You're the founder and owner of Rock Hopping Trail. Put your coaching hat on now. What are you going to tell your runners and potential runners that you're going to be coaching for this event? How do they go about preparing? Relentless forward progress, as you said earlier. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's uh, the, the, the importance of the long run and the importance of building endurance and the importance of building stamina, practicing your intake of food. 
at all times of day is important. Like I was saying earlier, you know, it's all very well being able to cope with digestion and and your stomach's happy to digest things during a 50K race and it's during the day. But our circadian rhythm or our, our body clock, our natural body clock simply does not want food after dark. We can push it to 10 p.m. or thereabouts. But after that, plus distance, for me, it always happens at about 100 kilometers. My body just suddenly doesn't want solids anymore. It wants soft, liquidy food. So uh, a a shake rather than a a sandwich, for instance. (laughs) So it's, it's it's a distance factor and it's a time of day body clock factor where your digestion and your gut just says, no, and I'm refusing to. So you, but you can teach your your stomach. You can teach your your digestion to cope with with what, the rigors that you put it through. <laughs> yeah. So so that's also part of your training, right? And the other the other thing as well is prepare your feet. Your feet have got to get used to being put through what you're going to put them through for hours after hour after hour, day after day, and it's even the even the the best runner isn't going to have pretty feet at the end of this event. You know, they're going to, they're going to have scary feet, but you want it, you, you want copable scary. You don't want blood blisters and, and, and crippling feet. So is this one of those where in preparation, you're really going to focus more on time on feet than any type of speed work or even hill work at, at the cost of any of those things, it's time on feet. Is, is that what you're saying? I wouldn't concentrate on speed work, yeah. I would concentrate on hill work. And, yes, time on feet and distance. Um, I'm, always, I'm always torn by this time on feet thing. I do believe in time on feet, but it's also important to make sure that during that long time on feet, you are also covering distance. It's something I, with my coaching, I never give my runners, I, I never go by time. I never say, send them off on a, a long run that's going to, that must take six hours. Because if, if I do that to a, an inexperienced runner, they might only cover 20Ks. They might have a marvelous six hours, but only cover 20Ks. So I always go by, um, distance and if it takes them 12 hours to do the x distance then that's how long it must take <laughs> but obviously the, the more experienced runner the more serious runner will understand that it's actually a blend of the two that is optimal we have spoken a lot you've <laughs> given us so much information really invaluable insights as well if people want to get in touch with you Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, that sort of thing. Yeah. How do they get hold of you? Um, well, I've got my my website, www.rockhoppingtrail.run. That's where you'll you'll find me on the on the web. My email address is Linda at rockhoppingtrail.run. Instagram, Linda Doak. I'm on Facebook as well. I've I've got a public account. So if you Google me, you'll find me. Excellent. And I'll put those links in the show notes as well. So nice chatting, really. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening. If you want to know more about Mindful Runner, check us out at mindfulrunner.co.za. On Instagram, you can find us at Mindful Runner. In the meantime, enjoy your running, happy trails, 
and don't forget to subscribe.